Please turn to Revelation, and we'll look at chapters 8 and 9 this morning, Revelation 8 and 9, as we continue going through the book of Revelation. So I've mentioned before, I've picked these books to go through at the same time in light of the various things that are going on in our country and the ways in which we're being challenged to respond in a way that honors the Lord. And so I'm hoping that uh, looking at Revelation and Daniel as well as Acts and 1 Corinthians will give us a, a kind of big picture view of how we're to respond uh, to what's going on uh, both in our own individual lives and in our own country. Um, one of the things I'd like to do is before we read these two chapters is to just give you a little context and to think about the first context is just our contemporary context. Um, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, is quoted by Charles Spurgeon as saying, I read the newspaper that I may see how my heavenly father governs the world. And that's how I read my news feed. And I hope all of us will read our news feeds that way. Is because... When we open up our app in the morning or read our newspaper or whatever we do to get our news, we are looking at what God has ordained to happen. And our Father is in charge of all that's happening. And therefore, whatever we read is an opportunity for us to ask the question, how am I to trust God in light of this? And how am I to love in light of this? And so... When we think about things like what the president of Ukraine said recently, that if negotiations with the president of Russia don't go well, then we'll probably be on the verge of World War III. So how do we respond to that? How do we trust God in light of that kind of um, talk? How do we love in light of that kind of talk? Then you've got President Biden just recently talking about the fact that he quoted his mom as saying, out of everything terrible, something good will come if you look hard enough for it. And then he kind of applies it to all the hard things that are going on in the world. And he says, it's a great opportunity for us to establish a new world order in light of what is taking place. And so when you hear that term new world order, uh, for those of us who are familiar with eschatology in the book of Revelation and, and various things like that, uh, that raises uh, flags uh, in our minds about what that might look like and what might be um, coming in this world. Um, the other context that I want us to think about this passage in light of, not only the contemporary context in light of the talk that's going on and the things that are happening, but also most importantly in terms of the gospel context. And the gospel context is that there is a God and he is good. In fact, he's the supreme good. Everything good flows from him. And he created us to find our happiness in him and to be holy like he is. And those two things go together, both holiness and happiness. And we're to be holy and happy under his sovereign rule over all things. And the reality is, uh, mankind has chosen not to worship God. We've chosen to worship idols, which is simply another name for a God substitute. And therefore, we do not love God like we should. We do not love each other like we should. And we deserve a just punishment for that. The good news is that God, in his mercy and grace, himself has provided an answer to that problem in the person of Jesus, his son, who lived the life we could never live, died the death that we deserve to die, rose from the dead, and is Lord of all and the only and yet an able and willing Savior for all. And he calls us uh, to look to him and to trust him, to turn from our sin and to trust him for the forgiveness of our sins and for the gift of eternal life. And faith is trusting the promises of God to forgive us through Christ, to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to give us eternal life and indeed to love us perfectly and to make us fully and forever happy in him. And he calls us in light of those promises to love people around us who aren't loving us in return, to love like he loves, to love um, according to his word 
and to do so for his glory and for the good of others. And so when we think about that, we have to realize that what we're going to read in Revelation 8 and 9 is people being judged because of their idolatry and their refusal to either receive God's mercy or to look to him for the happiness that their hearts long for. And we have to understand it in that sense that what God is doing here is in, in, the, um, in the category of justice, not injustice. Because what we're going to read this morning is a hard passage. Uh, Revelation 8 and 9 is not light reading, if you really think about what is going on. And yet, it's in the context, it actually starts off with a reference to Jesus, the Lamb, who offers rescue from the judgment of God. And yet, also does things to open people's eyes to see that sin is serious. And sin must be repented of, or there's ultimate consequences that are even worse. And so it's helpful to think about uh, what we're reading this morning in light of the gospel. And let me just put it finally in the context of the book of Revelation. Um, The book of Revelation unveils Jesus. It talks about how Jesus is going to be unveiled for who he is because people around us today do not see Jesus as he is. And like Jan this morning said, we don't see God or, or Jesus or anything unless God works a miracle, but we don't see God as he really is apart from God's grace. And the book of Revelation is about the fact that one day everybody's going to see Jesus for who he really is. And how that's going to play out is what the book of Revelation is about. And it's kind of, um, it's a book that's a picture book. So we're not meant to take it literally, but it refers to literal things. So it's, The pictures aren't literal, but they refer to literal things that are going to happen or that are happening in various ways. And we have a discussion of seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And this morning we're going to talk about the seven trumpets. And the trumpets are um, meant to highlight the fact that God is going to, in various ways, announce the end of the world. He's going to announce that the end of the world and the coming of Jesus is near. The trumpets say the end is coming, it's getting close. And so what I'd like to do is to read for us these two chapters. And I'd encourage you, obviously it's going to be a little long, but it's important to get the big picture, and that's why I've included both chapters. And just think about it in light of the things that I've just said. So in verse 1, it says this, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne." And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened. 
and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing or any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails there is power to hurt men for five months." They have as king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons. And the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. This is the word of God. Let me just remind you again that the pictures that we have here are just that, they're pictures. And so if you try to put these things together, uh, you're going to have a hard time fitting all the different descriptions together many times in one picture or one place or one creature. Uh, Sometimes the features seem contradictory in various ways. And it's because they're not meant to be literal in terms of the picture. They're meant to communicate things that are real, either in terms of what's actually going to happen on earth or in terms of what's happening in the spiritual realm. And so we have to keep that in mind that God is picturing truth for us. And the pictures that we have here are intended to be horrifying. They are intended to strike fear. So we have to understand that. There's a reason why uh, these things are described the way they are, because they're meant to alarm us. The title of the message is, When God Sounds the Alarm. Uh, The trumpets are alarms that are being sounded. The the seven trumpet judgments that are talked about in these two passages are about God announcing that there's an ultimate judgment coming. 
And he's saying you need to get prepared for it. And these judgments are announcing that and warning people of that very um, serious uh, reality. What we find uh, initially in verses 1 through 6 is what you might call the calm before the storm. You've got the Lord Jesus who's pictured as the Lamb. It's interesting in the book of Revelation you have the Lamb um, pictured as exercising wrath, which means that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world offers himself as a means of escaping the justice of God. But if we reject his offer, then we experience the wrath of God, which is the justice of God. And he, Jesus is not only the key to mercy, he is also the one who will execute the justice of God. And we see that reflected in this very first verse when it says, when the lamb broke the seventh seal. It says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That's what we might call the quiet before the storm. And what takes place during that quiet is it talks about the fact that seven angels appear with seven trumpets. And um, there is this one angel who gets a censer or an incense um, a container, and he takes some incense and he adds it to the prayers of the saints. And that is offered up to God. Then he takes the same vessel to scoop up um, coals from the altar and to throw it down to the earth. What's that all about? It is saying that the prayers of the saints play a role in the judgment of God. It's exactly what it's saying. It's a picture that God is actually responding to the prayers of his people. What kind of prayers? Well, earlier in the book, it talks about the martyrs who cry out, God, when will you um, bring justice for what happened to us? And the Lord Jesus taught all of us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the trumpet judgments and everything that happens is God's answer to that prayer. This is what has to happen for there to bring, there to become uh, heaven on earth. These things must happen. Sin must be judged. The world must be cleansed, so to speak. And so that's what we see pictured in these first six verses. It says in Zephaniah 1.7, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. What's the day of the Lord? The Bible says it's the day of gloom. It's the day of judgment. It's the day when Christ comes back to judge sin and to rescue his people and to usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. But it includes judgment. And so what we see here happening is um, the answer to prayer and it shows the importance of prayer. I don't know if um, any of you have read the book, This Present Darkness. But if you've read it, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, things in it that aren't good theology in various ways. But one of the good things about the book that was written back in 1986 by Frank Peretti um, is that it highlights the fact and it tries to picture, you know, what happens between angels and demons when people pray. That's really the basis of, of the book trying to picture what happens in the spiritual realm when people actually pray. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of bad theology in it, but there's some truth in it too. And this passage highlights the fact that when God's people pray, God does respond and he sends his angels to do things. Now that doesn't mean um, we're dictating what happens. It just means in God's sovereignty and his ordaining all that happens, he has ordained that prayer play an important role. And for us to say, oh, it's up to God. He's ordained it. I'm not going to pray, is to deny what God says is so important for his purpose to be accomplished in people's lives. And so this is just an encouragement to pray. Don't let God's sovereignty over everything keep you from praying. In fact, God says it's because I'm sovereign you should pray to me. If I wasn't sovereign, you'd have no reason to pray to me. If I couldn't control what happened, you would need to look for somebody else. But because I'm in charge, you ought to pray to me. And so this is another one of those uh, passages that encourages us to 
pray. Well, in in verse 7 of chapter 8 and all the way into verse uh, 19 of chapter 9, we have what you might call the fire alarms. You have uh, six of them uh, discussed. There's a seventh one later on. But you might call them the the discussion, or at least the beginning of the discussion, the seven of fire fire alarms. And we all know that um, depending on how many alarms there are in a fire, uh, that's how big and bad the fire is. And so if there's a a 10-alarm fire, that means that is a really big fire, and they're calling out a lot of fire trucks and a lot of firemen, a lot of people to fight that fire. Well, the book of, uh, excuse me, the number seven in the uh, book of Revelation is the number of perfection. And so um, I think Josh earlier talked about the perfect storm. The true perfect storm is the judgment of God. That's the worst perfect storm you could ever face. And these seven uh, trumpets announce the coming of the perfect storm where sinners will have to face a holy God. And you don't want to face him without a mediator, without a savior, without having your sins forgiven because he is a just God and he will bring whatever justice is due. And so these trumpets are meant to say that there is something that all sinners ought to be alarmed about, and that is the coming judgment in light of their own sin. But they also ought to realize that it is the Lamb of God who says, I came that you might be rescued from this very judgment. And so if we're not a Christian, then that's good news for us. If we are Christians, then we have good news for others who are not ready for that day. Well, one of the things that, uh, as I've mentioned several times already, is that uh, trumpets announce impending uh, danger, right? And I think Jan and, and Riker uh, talked about that in Sunday school. Is that right? What, did you get something in Sunday school, Riker? What'd you get? Yeah, show us your trumpet. Okay, very good. All right. Thank you, Riker. So, uh, Jan and Riker talked about the fact that God in his mercy and grace uh, alarms us. God in his mercy and grace says, there's judgment coming, but I have provided a savior. And that's why this passage, if if you look at the very end of chapter 9, it talks about the issue of repentance. The whole purpose of the trumpets are to call people to repentance, to call people to turn people to, to turn to him for the help they need and the happiness their heart longs for. And we need to hear these trumpets in light of that and, and see the trumpets in light of that. In Ezekiel 33, it says that the watchman, if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then he's a faithful watchman. And he says, if the people hear the trumpet and respond appropriately, uh, they will be delivered. Their lives will be delivered. And later in that same chapter, God says this, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So just read Ezekiel 33 and you hear the trumpet warning people and God saying, I send the trumpet that people might turn, that they might repent, that they might not die, not only physically, but ultimately in hell. And so what we see in these uh, trumpets that I'm just going to touch on briefly here this morning is um, God is painting pictures for John that John has recorded that draw from various pictures in the Old Testament. Uh, Destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues of the Exodus, the appearance of God on Mount Sinai, the destruction of Jericho, which involves seven trumpets, uh, the locust invasion in Joel, and here what I just read, the call to repentance in Ezekiel through the warning trumpet. So let me just touch on, just briefly, I mean, whenever you read the book of Revelation, you have to read it humbly because there are all kinds of 
ways that people have taken what the book of Revelation says. And so I'm not standing up here saying my view is uh, for sure the correct view. I'm just saying this is the way I understand it at this point in my life. And and we all pray for grace to understand these difficult passages. But so I'll share with you my perspective on it just briefly in light of the short amount of time that we have. So, so what are these trumpets trying to communicate? The first trumpet in verse 7 talks about hail and fire mixed with blood. Well, if you look at the uh, judgments and the plagues on Egypt, you see references to hail and fire. Fire probably reference, referencing lightning. And the blood, uh, some people see it as an atmospheric thing. Others would say it has to do with the impact, people dying as a result of it. But a picture is being painted here. Remember, it's not necessarily a literal thing, but a picture is being painted of what I would say is more than likely since it comes on the earth that it has to do with the kinds of natural disasters that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. I link a lot of what is said in Revelation to what Jesus already taught in in Matthew 24 and in the Gospels because I think they're meant to be linked together. And so I see in this um, an increase. Obviously, a trumpet says... You're get, we're getting near to the end, so there's, there's going to be an increase of things that have already happened in various ways. And one of those things that will be increased is natural disasters. For instance, it says in Luke 21:11, there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, things like that. But you notice it says in a number of these different trumpets that only a third were affected. It says a third of this, like in this case, a third of the earth or a third of the trees. That is a picture of a limited impact. Earlier in the seals, it talked about a fourth. Later on, in the bowls, it's going to talk about all, which is increasing devastation, increasing judgment. And so uh, even the third is figurative. It doesn't mean literally a third. It just means a limited judgment that's meant to warn people of comprehensive judgment in the future. The um, the second trumpet in verses 8 and 9 um, talks about a great mountain burning with fire, a landing in the sea. Uh, the sea oftentimes is understood as a reference to people. We talk about a sea of people. And uh, mountains are often understood in terms of kingdoms. It's re- related to political entities. And so one way uh, to talk about it is to see the mountain as as a kingdom that's actually going to um, to rise among the people and um, in some way or have a, begin to have an impact on the people. And we could even see the talk in our own day of um, things like the Great Reset, uh, a new world order. And so it, it could be talking about... Um, Increased societal and political unrest and chaos that ultimately results in the one world government that the Bible talks about. Um, Luke 21.10 talks about a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, Russia invading Ukraine. It's part of what the Bible talks about. Whether or not it's part of God's warning of the end, we don't know yet, I don't believe. But obviously it's part of what the Bible talks about as things that God will use as they increase to get our attention, to alert us that uh, the return of Christ is near. The third trumpet is talked about in verses 10 and 11. And... um, I think it's talking about increased economic issues and even issues with basic resources. Maybe uh, we talk even these days about having supply chain issues and, and things like that. In this, these verses, it talks about a great star falling from heaven. Uh, sometimes a great star refers to a great prince or a great leader. And the idea that uh, it could be that um, this refers to... Um, growing um, governmental issues or in control that ultimately results in the Antichrist. Why? Because uh, it's well known that the way that tyranny is fostered is through chaos. And that's how uh, Hitler gained power. 
Yes, he took advantage of economic issues and other societal issues, and he played off of people's concerns and fears, and they said, okay, we're going to look to you to be our savior. And so the idea is that this could be on the increase and will ultimately result in um, this evil prince, the Antichrist, taking advantage of a lack of basic resources. The whole idea of the springs of water is kind of a picture of basic resources. Um, But the picture of the star being wormwood is the ultimate uh, way of saying that whatever's going on here um, is not going to satisfy people. It's actually going to, um, may taste good, but it's going to be bitter in their bellies. It's not going to be the ultimate satisfaction that people long for. So this could point to something like that. The things like what we see in Second Thessalonians, where Paul talks about the man of lawlessness who's going to arise, and he says the end will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. Or it talks about in Revelation 13, the beast from the sea, um, that the whole world will worship. At some point, that's going to happen, and maybe this is uh, connected to that in terms of a warning. I personally think that's going to be one of the things that we will see before Christ comes back is we will see the rise of a one-world government and the rise of someone that people begin to look to as God, as it talks about in Second Thessalonians on some level. Then in the fourth trumpet um, in verses 12 and 13, talks about um, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars being struck uh, so that a third of them would be darkened. To me, I think one way you can take this is that it's focusing on the issue of things becoming increasingly dark. Darkness uh, can be literal or darkness can be figurative, right? And um, this is meant, I believe, to point to spiritual issues and even societal interactions where things become increasingly dark. Uh, worse, things get worse. And it talks about um, in Second Thessalonians that before the end comes, there will be a great apostasy. And it talks about that the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders will, will come. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, God will send upon them a deluding influence. So it's talking about the fact that before the end comes, Uh, more and more people will fall away from Christ. And there will be greater and greater deception, greater and greater darkness that comes. It says in Matthew 24, at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. It says in verse 24, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And later on in the book of Revelation, it talks about the beast from the earth who actually appears to be a religious leader who will encourage the world to worship the Antichrist. And so this fourth trumpet could point to increasing apostasy that ultimately results in uh, the worship of the Antichrist at some point. Then the fifth trumpet... If you read, these are the two longest, the fifth and sixth trumpets that are talked about here. It goes into much greater detail. And if you notice, there are things that are said that are linked to Satan and linked to demons in various ways. And so most people understand uh, these two things as being uh, not necessarily manifested physically like the first four. There might be physical manifestations of those four things in various ways, the first four trumpets. They tend to look at the last two, or at least the fifth and sixth one, as being primarily spiritual dynamics that will have, obviously, outward physical implications, but the the description emphasizes the spiritual nature of what's going on. And that's um, why if you look at what it talks about, it talks about the opening of the bottomless pit, talks about smoke coming out, and then locust-like creatures coming out. And it says that, they are given uh, the power to torment men, not to kill men. It says they're actually limited. They cannot kill people, but they are given the power to torment people and to do it 
for a limited time, for five months. And again, all of this is figurative talk for a limited kind of thing that's meant to call people to repentance. And so what you have here is a reflection of what we find in the book of Joel. It talks about God's judgment in terms of a locust invasion. It doesn't mean that there's going to be literally locusts, you know, covering a third of the earth or anything like that. But it's talking about unprecedented demonic activity. Even during the pandemic, we've had people talk about how there's been a rise in various uh, mental illness issues, uh, addiction issues, suicide, those kinds of things. Uh, could that get even worse? Yes, it could. Could, um, could demonic activity be behind that in various ways, in greater and greater ways in the future? Yes, it could. And so I think that kind of thing could be reflected in uh, things like we see in the Gospels, like in Luke 21, where Jesus says there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations and in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. So dismay, perplexity, fainting, those are inner things. Those are things going on in people's hearts and minds that are terrifying them. And so that indeed could be part of what is being pictured here to one degree or another. But the interesting thing about this is it says this is not happening to those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Those who have the seal of God on their foreheads are Christians. So he's saying this demonic oppression, these demonic attacks will not affect believers in Jesus. They will be protected from it. Just like the Israelites were protected in certain ways from the plagues in Egypt. Likewise, God will protect his people. But to reject God does open us up to demonic activity, depending on what God might allow in people's lives. And someone commented on that, that God is the one who is granting the permission for this to happen. But he has good purposes. But it involves Satan and the demons who don't have good purposes. And it's interesting that Satan is persecuting his own followers. The Bible says if we're not a follower of God, we're ultimately a follower of Satan in some sense. And therefore, if unbelievers are being afflicted by demons, as someone has said, there's a tragic irony in serving Satan. They said um, Satan's perfect, uh, excuse me, purpose in this is to afflict his allies who dwell on the earth. So there's a contrast between those sealed with God by God and those who dwell on the earth, whose whose life is all about the earth, has nothing to do with heaven. He says Satan and his demons afflict his allies who dwell on the earth, and then he says the devil rewards his own loyal subjects. With cruel torture. The devil doesn't have any good purposes for those who believe his lies. He's ultimately out to destroy those who believe his lies. And that's the tragedy is that God tells us the truth and we think he's lying. Satan tells us a lie that he might deceive us and destroy us. And it's the Bible that is meant by God, by his grace, and through his spirit to, to deliver us from what Satan intends and to rescue us from the wrath of God as it plays out. Well, the last trumpet is the sixth trumpet, verses 13 through 19, which I believe um, reflects the idea of unprecedented lawlessness, um, which could involve the killing of masses of people, uh, loss of life of all kinds of things because it talks about the fact that a third of mankind will be killed. Not all of mankind, but a third, which means, it's again, it's limited, but it's still great, still a great thing that's happening. And it talks about the idea of this um, four angels who are at the river Euphrates. Now, in the first century... The Euphrates River was the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. 
And it was also the region beyond which that people in Israel feared that their enemies would cross the Euphrates and come and attack them. And so that to talk about, um, you know, vicious, cruel hordes from beyond the Euphrates coming against you was to think in terms of the worst kind of enemy coming against you. So that's what's being pictured here is the most terrifying picture of this 200 million uh, man army, so to speak. And yet really the way it's uh, framed in the Greek, it really means a, a number that you can't even count. It's not strictly 200 million. Again, that's figurative. And it's, it talks in terms of, you know, fire and smoke proceeding and brimstone proceeding out of their mouths and, and out of their tails. You know, they're serpents with heads and things like that. That's all figurative again of a terrifying thing that's going to happen that's actually going to result in a lot of death. And um, the implication is we know that just if things turn so bad that there's just rampant killing across the globe, we would call that lawlessness. And even in our day, we've got people talking about defunding the police, not prosecuting people who commit crimes, uh, just allowing people who loot and riot to, to, to somehow be supported. And we need to realize that God could remove all restraint off of society, and that would become more and more the norm. People just are unrestrained doing those kinds of things. And it says in Matthew 24, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. In Second Thessalonians, it says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already, already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So there is a restraint on lawlessness, but at some point that restraint is going to be lifted. And we can see that to some degree in our own society. And that, I think, could very well be pictured in this as well. As I mentioned before, um, there are things going on in our day and time. Um, it, since the pandemic, people have begun to fly again. But some would say uh, fighting and altercations on plane flights have increased 60-fold compared to what they were before the pandemic. Um, others have said that in, in the largest U.S. cities, um, shootings have gone up 80% from what they were before There's a book by Carl Truman called Strange New World in which he says, For many people, the Western world in which we now live has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it. Things once regarded as obvious and unassailable virtues have in recent years been subject to vigorous criticism and even in some cases come to be seen by many as more akin to vices. Indeed, it can seem as if things that almost everybody believed as unquestioned orthodoxy the day before yesterday, that marriage, for instance, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, for example, are now regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe. And he says, welcome to this strange new world. And so he's highlighting the fact that things, even in our own day, are beginning to change in such a way that what was once law is now no longer law. We're becoming more and more lawless in our view of things in terms of what God says is right and wrong. And these trumpets, I think, uh, point to that kind of thing. Now, that's not to say that we're on the verge of Christ coming back because I don't think there's enough information yet to know how close we are. I'm just saying that these are the kinds of things that the Bible seems to be pointing to that will get worse before Christ comes back and is meant to alarm us. As believers, it's meant to cause us to look up because our redemption draweth nigh. But it's also meant for unbelievers to wake up that judgment is coming and that the call to trust in Christ is so important in light of that. And that's the last thing, is that in verses 20 and 21, you could characterize that as the kindness of God rejected. 
Uh, in verse 20, it talks about the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver, etc. They did not repent of their murders, sorceries, immorality, or thefts. So what it's saying is that because it's bringing up the issue of repentance, it's saying that is the purpose of the trumpets, to call people to repentance, to alarm them that this is the consequence of sin. This is the consequence of rejecting God. There are consequences to saying there is no God and we will not live according to anything that God says is right and wrong. There are consequences to it. And we're foolish as a society, and I'm talking about as a nation, if we think there are no consequences to rejecting God. And the trumpets make that very, very clear. There are consequences to rejecting God and that God is very patient. And God, through his people, calls people to repentance and calls them to find life. And yet at some point, God will say, enough is enough. And he will ramp things up as a final call to repentance. Then the last trumpet is ultimately where Jesus comes back. Because the Bible says God, Jesus will return at the last trumpet. And so it's a call. It's, it's God's kindness Sometimes that kindness feels kind. The kindness of God leads us to repentance through good things, through blessings, through his patience with us in all kinds of ways. But sometimes that kindness is a severe kindness. It's kind of like the kindness of spanking your child. It's kind of like, kind of like the kindness of actually holding someone accountable for committing a crime. That's actually a kindness, it might be a severe kindness, but it's still a kindness. It's not a kindness to let people get away with crime any more than it's a kindness to let little kids run amok and, and not have any discipline in their lives. So there can be a kind kind of kindness, so to speak, but we would say that feels kind. And then a severe kind of kindness that says that doesn't feel, feel kind to me, but it's still kind because it's, it's meant to lead us to repentance. And so... Um, God works this way. It's important to see that God works this way. You might recall in Luke 13, people come to Jesus and they say, what do you think about uh, Pilate killing those people that, that uh, were worshiping? And Jesus says, I don't think that they were worse sinners than you are, but unless you repent, you will re- likewise perish. So what's the point? Jesus was actually saying, it's part of what happened there. Uh, There was no injustice on God's part in in terms of what happened there. But for you, it was a kindness. Because that is a warning to you that if you don't repent, you will receive something like that. If you don't turn to God for the help you need and the happiness your heart longs for, there is a just consequence. And so even the tragedies are meant to call us to repentance for for those who don't die in the tragedy. For those looking upon the tragedy, it's meant to help us to see the just consequences of sin. And Jesus goes on in Luke 13 to tell a parable right afterwards. And he says, uh, there was this man who had a fig tree and it wasn't bearing any uh, figs. And he says to his gardener, cut it down. And the gardener says, let me just work on it for another year. And then if it doesn't bear fruit, I'll cut it down. And the owner says, okay. What's the point of that parable? It's, Time to repent. No fruit, you deserve to be cut down. Wait, wait, let me, let me try some other measures, so to speak. And then if it doesn't bear any fruit, then we cut it down. That's what Jesus is saying, that um, God sovereignly works in such a way that he's calling us all to repentance. He's calling us all to turn to him for help, calling us all to turn to him for the happiness our hearts long for, Certainly as believers, even as believers, we need to do that. But especially those who aren't believers in light of what lies ahead. So how do we uh, kind of bring this to a close? For us as believers, God says, Jesus says, be on the alert. Uh, When you read your news feed, look and see what I'm doing in the world. And be alert that I might be letting you know that Christ's return isn't that very far in the future? Well, let me just sum up, summarize very, very quickly. 
what can we take away? God, God is sovereignly working out his plan, but we should never doubt the role prayer plays in the purposes of God. God warns, and we need to heed the warnings in scripture and in life. God brings judgment on a sinful world, but we can rest in the truth that nothing can truly hurt a believer in Jesus. God is sovereign over life and death, and our efforts toward life or death are under his hand. What is happening on the world stage is determined by what is happening behind the scenes in the heavens. God sends warnings of judgment to lead us to repentance. God is leading us to repent of the worship of idols, which is any God substitute, and the sin against one another it causes. Because when we worship something other than God, we sin against other people as well. You can't worship another God and be a truly loving person. Finally, our greatest need is repentance, turning to God for help and happiness. And God's primary purpose in our circumstances is repentance, whether through kind kindness or severe kindness. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that you would just help us to to hear your word in light of where we are individually. As believers, help us to see that that you're calling us to repentance as well through circumstances in various ways. You're dealing with our own propensity to look to other things and other people in ways we ought to be looking to you. You're calling us to turn to you for help, to to turn to you for for life, for happiness. Uh, Yet we thank you that we have no need to fear your wrath. We have no need to fear your judgment because of what Christ has done for us. And still, yet still, you are still working in our lives to uh, deliver us from wandering away from you because our souls are prone to wander. And for those of us who don't know you and those in our lives that don't know you, uh, you are at work in their lives to call them to repentance, to call them to look to you for the help they need, especially for the forgiveness of their sins through Jesus, and to look to you for the happiness that only you can give them. Father, help us to see that these kinds of passages are intended to alarm us, not out of our wits, but into our wits, to to not drive us to insanity, but to drive us to sanity to see you and respond to you as you call us to. And we pray that through the work of your spirit, through your word, that you would grant us grace to do what we need to do in responding to you today. Father, we pray that all those who are trusting in you as their Lord and their Savior, Lord Jesus, that you would prepare us to partake of the Lord's Supper and that you'd meet us during this time and that we would rejoice that we need not fear your wrath because of what you've done for us, and that we would be encouraged to share that good news with those who have yet to trust you for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.